0: I managed to jump up onto the stage backwards last night once. That was foolhardy. I wasn't going to try and do it again. I'll use the stairs from here on out. (sighs) Yes, yes. Well, it is a pleasure to be with you uh, in these morning sessions as we talk about families living under the Lordship of Christ uh, as I mentioned, it's, uh, it was 2005, the last time I did a full series at family camp. It takes about 10 years for people to forget the last one and they think, well, maybe we'll invite him back. Um, uh, some of you who know my reputation were lulled into a false sense of security last night because it was about 28 minutes long and it was really fun and engaging for kids. <laughs> Don't worry, it won't happen again. I'm usually accused of giving drinks of water with a fire hose, and I'm afraid that that may be. As I was thinking about this over the last few months and, and trying to draw the material together, I thought, you know, this is vacation. We shouldn't have to think that hard. Um, and uh, I guess I just don't know how to do theology light. Um, and so we've, we're going to have a lot of things to think about. I hope it won't. A lot of it, I am going to assume for many of you, is going to be familiar territory. Um, matter of fact, when you talk about the family, uh, you really wonder what you could say that hasn't already been said about a thousand times. But as has been mentioned, we've got intergenerational work going on here, and so um, you, know, you your parents might have heard it, but maybe you haven't heard it yet. Or maybe since you had kids, now you've got to remember some things by the time you're working with your grandkids. And, of course, God's Word is always timely for us, and so um, it's beneficial for us to, uh, to think about these things together. I've been encouraged by many of your comments, even yesterday, about your high expectations. That's flattering, uh, but also humbling, um, as I was preparing the outlines for these messages last week, I was kind of rebuked by the Lord, thinking, you know, I've been doing this for 43 years now, and I know how to make an outline, I know how to pull a lesson together, and it's so easy to just do it in the strength of well-trained flesh. But Jesus says the flesh profits nothing. The Spirit Gives Life, and that's been my prayer, that God would bless us by His Spirit as we study together this week. And, uh, and you know, sometimes God touches us and teaches us something that has nothing to do with the theme of the week, but something from His Word penetrates our hearts and convicts us and transforms us, and I want us to be open to, to whatever He has in store for us during our studies this week. So with that in view, let's look to the Lord in prayer together. Lord Jesus, you know better than we do um, what you meant when you said the flesh profits nothing. I know for me, I think the flesh profits something, maybe not much, but there are certain things that I can do, we can do without much thought Uh, Without a sense of utter dependence upon you, uh, without the prayerfulness, the urgency of asking you to help us and to bless us. And and, uh, we want to be weaned away from that self-trust more and more every day with every experience. And, And Lord, so much of what you bring us in our family lives pushes us beyond what we could ever imagine that we can do and and many of us have said i can't do this i can't take this anymore and sometimes we've quit instead of learning to love you more and trust you more and rely upon that supernatural supply which is the personal presence of your holy spirit so lord i have my outlines i have my lessons um uh, i know where i want to go but i really want you to take us where you want us to go, to shine into the shadow lands even of our renewed hearts and illuminate the dark corners, show us the Savior in fresh and wonderful ways, and then mold us and make us after your will, make us willing and yielding to you. So bless us, O Lord, as we study together today, and we will give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've entitled this series, uh, Living Under the Lordship of Christ as Families, and of course it would be very easy to just talk about family life, the principles of biblical family life, and and how we might implement those things in various ways. We live in a pretty pragmatic age. We're not all that interested in theory. We just want to cut to the chase. What's the bottom line? What am I supposed to do? And oftentimes our efforts run out of gas pretty quickly because faith needs fuel, and if we don't do the thinking then we're not going to be able to do the living with the kind of perseverance, the kind of steadfastness that is required. Uh, You know, as you live in families, whether you're a parent, a husband, or a wife, a a child, a sibling, that it's a 24-7 job, and it takes constant attention. And and many times we're looking for a place where we can just coast for an hour, Get them all down for a nap at the same time so that we can relax. Well, relaxation is great, but when our faith relaxes, then we're in trouble. And so, I don't want us just to talk about the principles and the practices. I mean, in the 50 years or so since J. Adams, for example, wrote Christian Living in the Home, or Dr. Dobson began his focus on the family ministry, I mean there are literally hundreds, maybe thousands of books with a lot of solid biblical material on the principles and practices of living together as families in all of those different relationships and, and roles. And so there's a ton of information out there and maybe you've got stacks of books. Maybe you've read them. If you're like me, you buy way more books than you actually read. I'm really hoping that I can take my library with me. Because <laughs> I need more time to finish all the books. You know, I know you can't take your money with you, but maybe you can take your books and have leisure time in glory to catch up on your reading. I don't know. Um, but I want us to come at this from a particular angle, the Lordship of Christ, so that we can, we can see the rationale of faith that then enables us to address these relationships and these roles, and then you can fill in a lot of what you already know you should be doing. I mean, oftentimes our problem as Christians, especially if we've been in the church for a while, isn't that we fumble or falter because we don't know what to do, but for some reason, we just don't put it into practice. We talk the talk, but we... Do not consistently walk the walk. And so we want to look at this from the standpoint of the Lordship of Christ. And this morning, in this first session, it's kind of introductory on that score. I can assure you that I am no expert on family life. As a matter of fact, I've failed in almost every imaginable way, as a husband, as a father, um, and uh, now I'm working on failures as a grandfather as well. But, you know, that develops its own kind of expertise, doesn't it? If you are brought by the Holy Spirit to see your failures and if you can learn from your mistakes and if you can seek God with a greater sense of brokenness and, and that dependency. And, and so uh, this is one sinner in a family talking to other sinners uh, pointing us all, I hope, to the supply that Christ gives us. One of the reasons it's very important to address this in a theological context is because, as I said to the kids last night, there's always this tendency to slide away from the redemptive center of the gospel into some kind of moralism. And of course, if you're Christians, then you're looking for God's moral principles that we find in the Bible, and so the moralism doesn't look quite as as, uh, dangerous as it can be. Uh, But we want something more than that. We want to live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us within the context of our family lives. And so we need rules from God, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but we need much more than simply rules. We need to become self-conscious, deliberate, intentional, purposeful, if you will, about the direction and about the motivation for our Christian living in the home. Right living can only flow from right thinking. And that means faith, and it means faith rooted in the teaching of Scripture, both about God's redemptive history, about the theology of our faith, and then how that flows out into practice as well in the end. You know, we live in a pragmatic age. I'm pretty pragmatic myself. I really don't need to understand how electricity works. I just want the lights to go on when I flick the switch. And many of us are that way. Don't bother me with the theology, just tell me what to do, and when I flick the switch, I want the lights to go on. But that theology is so very, very important. And here we're thinking about the theology of the Lordship of Christ, which really is the big umbrella that covers all Christian living, all true spirituality, as Francis Schaeffer calls it. For Paul, the apostle, the fundamental Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, he says, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or again, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Or as he said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. In Peter's great Day of Pentecost sermon, as he was explaining the phenomena that attended the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, explaining who Jesus was and what he had done and what the Jews had done to him, and then how God raised him from the dead, you know that final climactic summary statement in Acts 2.36. Let all Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Jesus had announced in his so-called Great Commission at the end of the book of uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew that all authority in heaven and on earth had been vested in Him, had been delegated to Him by the Father. And on that basis, then, he gave the command to his church to go and make disciples of the nations. The church's mission, if you will, is to implement the lordship of Christ in ever-growing circles of influence by teaching men and women, boys and girls, to observe all that the Lord, based on that transcendent authority, had taught us. So discipleship, Christian living, means learning in the power of the Holy Spirit to observe all that we have been taught on the authority of the word of he who is the Lord, Jesus Christ, because of who he is and what he has done. This is what we do after we believe. As we come to faith in Christ, then we work out those implications. And certainly one of the central areas of life where we need to work those out is in the family. So this week I want us to unpack that statement about discipleship and apply it to some basic areas of our lives as families. What does it actually mean to live under the Lordship of Christ within the family, as human beings, as husbands and wives, as parents and maturing children, and even a word at the end for those of us growing in numbers at family camp. You know, I'm entering in the, into the geezer stage. That's a term of endearment, by the way, so if any of you have, are resisting being a geezer, and, and geezers are guys, you know, there's, a woman of the equivalent age is not a geezer. But anyway, entering the geezer stage and rubbing shoulders with some of you who are more advanced in that stage than I, God has a word for us uh, as well, I hope. So today I want us in this first session, session to ins- explore the idea of Christ's lordship and its implications for our discipleship. And as I say, for many of you, this is not going to be new news. But as you pray for yourself and your receptivity, ask God, by His Word, to speak powerfully in your life, in your consciousness, to renew your commitment to living under the Lordship of Christ. And again, God might hit you with a ricocheting bullet. Where you need to live more self-consciously under His Lordship may not be in your family relationships. Maybe it's out at the workplace, or in your relationship to the church, or your conduct in the world. As I say, it's the big umbrella. It covers all of our life. But in doing that, then, I want to at least alert you to the grid, or the pattern that we're going to follow, and, and it'll be kind of a loose following as we go through these upcoming Messages. So, first of all, as Christians, as you know, we have been called to submit to and thereby to thrive under the gracious, redemptive lordship of Jesus Christ. The term Lord is used 822 times, give or take, in the New Testament. Lord Jesus, used 22 times and the Lord Jesus Christ, that full expression, a full 81 times. By contrast, and this is interesting, the term Savior only appears 24 times, and eight of those times apply to the Father as distinct from the Son. So hundreds of references to Jesus as Lord and a few to him as Savior, and I'm not trying to make a, a big point of that, is, except to say, how important is this concept of Jesus' lordship? His messianic lordship, his mediatorial lordship, now his triumphant resurrection lordship over all creation, and certainly over us who confess his name. It's a little strange, isn't it, that the lordship of Jesus should even be remotely controversial given the biblical evidence, but it is. Can we accept Jesus without accepting him as Lord? And what does that mean? And what is submitting to his lordship as some second work of grace really look like? Well, it's astonishing that we don't understand and appreciate like we should the centrality of the Lordship of Christ given the confession of the early church. The Gospel, which of course is the story of Jesus, is in a nutshell the story of how God sent His own Son, the second person of the glorious Trinity, to become both Lord and Christ, Messiah. Both Israel's King and thereby the true Lord of all creation, all the peoples on the earth. That theme is traced throughout Jesus' earthly life. The note is sounded again and again. In his birth, the angels proclaim him as the heir to the throne of his father David, pointing to his messianic dignity. At his baptism, which is his anointing with the Holy Spirit who descends as a dove, God declares him to be my son, my appointed king. Later in the transfiguration, again, the language of Psalm 2 is used to point to Jesus' messianic dignity. Flipping over in a completely different way is the irony of that placard that that Pilate had put over Jesus' head, nailed to the cross. Jesus, the King of the Jews. Pilate thought it was a joke, but we know that he spoke truth beyond anything he could have imagined, and when the Jews wanted it taken down, Pilate said, no, it's staying. What I have written, I have written, and it needed to stay there. Because it was becoming true in the most profound way in the death and then the resurrection of the Messiah. And in his resurrection and his ascension, God says, Sit at my right hand, O king, until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. That makes the king of the Jews not a local monarch, but the rightful heir of all creation the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Paul can summarize the gospel as he does in the beginning of his letter to the Romans by speaking about the message concerning God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, there's the messianic heritage, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead even Jesus Christ our Lord. To understand who Jesus is and to confess his name is to acknowledge and thereby submit to his lordship. On one occasion during his earthly ministry, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you? It's a good question, isn't it? How can we make good on the lip service that Jesus is Lord unless we're willing to observe all the things that He has taught us on the basis of the authority of who He is and what He came to do? And so submission is part of confession. Confessing that Jesus is Lord means not simply saluting his lordship at a distance, but humbling ourselves under that sovereign authority. And as I say, this is controversial in some Christian circles. Some claim that this idea of lordship salvation is nothing less than a denial of the free grace of the gospel. Salvation is by faith alone, and so to talk in language of repentance or commitment or obedience they say, is a dangerous tendency towards salvation by works. A wedge is driven between justification and sanctification. Oh, yes, surrender is commendable, consecration, obedience, but they're always a kind of a secondary activity within the Christian life. It simply isn't biblical. We need to see salvation as an acknowledgement and submission to the Lordship of Christ. And praise God, within our Reformed faith, this has been a theme that has been emphasized over and over and over again. The only appropriate, that is the only saving response to the gospel message, to this announcement of who Jesus is and what he came into the world to do, is that every knee should bow and every knee tongue, confess. You confess from your knees. As you have submitted, you declare. And you know, that's not a a forced submission of a slave. I always think of that, it was actually in the old, 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 old Robin Hood movie, and it was in the remake back in the 70s, uh, when Robin Hood, who has been faithful to the exiled king, and he's done everything in the name of the exiled king. And then finally, in that climactic closing scene, the king shows up and reveals himself as Richard. Robin Hood goes to his knees. That's the instinct of faith. As we see the revelation of the glory of God's own Son, of course we will submit. What else would we do? He has given himself for us. And we gladly acknowledge His Lordship, and we are eager then to say, Lord, what would you have me do? Where would you send me? How would you use me? Our whole life then is living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We surrender in gratitude and love. And so, submission and the obedience that flows from that submission is, like gratitude and love, part and parcel of what it means to confess Christ. If we resist that, then the heart of the matter is not in us. We don't understand redemption. We don't understand Jesus' lordship unless we instinctively go to our knees and submit ourselves to Him. And the good news is, is that surrender to this Lord does not bring destruction, but the rich renewal and salvation that is called eternal life. Literally, the life of the age to come. Glorious life. Resurrection life. New creation life. If we hear and heed the gospel message, then how can we live in any other way. And the question is, how should we then live under the Lordship of Christ? Now, the pattern that King Jesus gives us to direct us and enable us to live our lives in submission to his Lordship is, is worth noting. Um, and uh, this is something that, again, you may have been introduced before, before. Um, don't have a whiteboard, and I didn't have an overhead. Think of a triangle. We have a standard by which we live. We have motivational factors by which we live, and we have a goal toward which we live our lives. And if we're going to think in a holistic way, about true spirituality, about Christian living, about Christian living in the home, we need to ask questions about God's standard. What is the word of the Lord? But then we also need to think about our motivation. And also, and this sometimes gets less attention we need to think about our destination. When Dr. Van Till first introduced me, at least, and other students to this triangle, and others have used it, and I'm not sure that it was original with him, but he said, you know, if you're going on a trip, you need to know where your destination is. You have to have a goal in mind. And then you need a, a road map, something, now, this was way pre-GPS, you know. You actually had to use paper maps, those big fold-out ones, you know. By the time you got them open, you couldn't see where you were driving anymore. Great stuff. I still love those maps better than GPS. You know, I like to see the big picture. I don't like these little square screens that say, well, this is where you are right now, but who knows where you're going to be in 10 miles. (laughs) But I digress. So you need a goal, you need a destination, you need a map that will direct you how to get there, but then, of course, you've got to have a spark in the car and some gas in the tank in order for you to get moving. And uh, so I want to just think about that triangle for a moment. Obviously, our standard is the word of the Lord. Not only what Jesus said, the red letter edition, but Jesus spoke throughout Scripture. So all Scripture, God-breathed, is our authoritative standard. The directions that show us where we are going. Habakkuk. And Paul, echoing him, declared that the just, the justified, the covenant-keeping man or woman, will live by faith. And we spend a lot of time emphasizing and explaining the by faith. But you know, it's equally important to think of the live by faith. We are to conduct our whole life by faith. Faith is... A way of life. And for our purposes, it's the only way of successful family living. To walk, to live by faith. Jesus put it this way during his temptation in the wilderness. And again, quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's interesting in the Deuteronomy context, uh, just to read a little bit of that, Moses reminds Israel that in the wilderness, God humbled you, hold that term, humbled you and let you hunger and then fed you with manna that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Humbling and hungering are necessary prerequisites to living by faith. And as I'll point out as we go along, there's nothing that humbles you like family life. And there's nothing that makes you hungry in the sense of recognizing all that you don't have and that you need in order to live in these relationships well. And that should lead you to that dependency upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man's original test in the Garden of Eden was to see if he would live by faith in what God had promised. By obeying His command. All of His commands, but specifically that command concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve failed that test. But our Lord Jesus did not fail that test. When the evil one came to him with his own version of an Adamic temptation, Jesus trusted, and therefore Jesus obeyed. Out of his absolute confidence and reliance upon the Heavenly Father, he did or resisted doing what Satan had tempted him to do in our life experiences like the or our life experiences like those of Israel in the wilderness are tests from God they're designed to teach us steadfastness remember what james says count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect Complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so we are taught, we are trained in this steadfastness through the trials of our faith. Ultimately, We will, by grace, receive the crown of life that God has prepared for those of us who love Him. And so, we can categorize family life as a class of tests. You know, you go to school, you have an English class, you get English tests. You have a physics class, you get physics tests. You have a math class, and maybe even a PE class. You're going to have to perform at the end. Well, family life is a test. For husbands and wives, for parents and children, for brothers and sisters, yeah, and even for grandparents, grandmoms, and grandfathers. And it's the testing character of the family life that often disturbs us the most. We're trying to figure out how to make our families such that there's no more testing. Well, friends, embrace the testing. Embrace the humbling. Embrace the hungering, and then let it drive you to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God for that supply which is sufficient. Those who are resolved to, who are restored, excuse me, to a right relationship with God through faith in Christ, will instinctively seek the Word of God as the pattern of thinking and acting in a way that pleases Him. Again, the same instinct before the glory of the redeeming King that drives us to our knees also makes us open the book and pay attention to the Word of God. I mean, just think of all of those passages in the Psalms that equate the Word of Scripture with light and understanding. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Direct me in the path of your commandments, for there I find delight. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Our world thinks that it's ridiculous that we should care what an old book like the Bible has to say. Matter of fact, the fact that it's so old is three strikes against it right at the outset. They can't understand. They think it's just this kind of traditional formality that we reverence the Scripture. But again, think about the road map. If you get off on a wrong turn, and you're off there by yourself, and you wonder how to get back on the right track and headed in the right direction, the most handy thing in life is a road map. And no one opens up the road map and says, well, I don't know what gives you the authority to tell me which way to go. Why would anyone balk at the word of God when he says, this is the path of life, walk in it, and here are the directions? I mean, that's what Torah means. We always associate Torah with law, but it means literally direction. And by extension, teaching and instruction and doctrine. But this isn't a set of arbitrary rules that God has thrown out there to make us check the box, but rather they're the roadmap to being truly human, being blessed, being happy. We follow them to our benefit. And I'm afraid that there's still enough left in us, even as renewed creatures, that that kind of hackle that raises up on the back of your neck when somebody tells you what to do. Whew. You know, we like suggestions, right? Back to the pirates of uh, the Caribbean. We don't want rules, we don't want commands. And I think there's some Christians that read Psalm 119, for example, and think, "What is this guy talking about? He's talking about commandments and he's celebrating them. He's rejoicing in them. He's giving thanks for them. That's not my experience. I don't like rules." But you see, if we see it in this context, they are a delight. They are a life saver when you're lost. And when as a father, you're lost, you don't know what to do with this son. And you don't know what else to say. You've tried everything. So we go back to the scripture to find more words from God. And we think, yeah, but he hasn't been listening to them. I need something different. No, no, no. You just give him more of what he won't listen to until God opens his heart and makes him responsive. So we have a standard that we need to follow. And that standard is the Word of God. Now again, formally, we Orthodox Presbyterians, and maybe others, I don't want to exclude anybody, but if we're evangelical, we, on paper, submit to the authority of the Bible. But you see, this is the theological reason for that commitment. This is the redemptive historical setting in which that commitment makes any sense at all. And that's why we use the Scriptures. We don't just approve them. But your pastors and your Sunday school teachers and you as parents in the home, you read the Bible to your children. You preach the Scriptures day after day, line upon line, precept upon precept. This is not some abstract, you know, we live as Americans and most of us have never read the Constitution. Well, maybe in this crowd a few of you have. You know, it's like electricity. It works. You flick the switch and hopefully it's okay. We don't know if it's unconstitutional or not. But that's not the way we treat the Scriptures. We read them, we pore over them, we treasure them in our heart because they are the word of God and man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the roadmap. But a roadmap by itself is insufficient. So we need to think about the enabling, the, the motivational dimension. And here is the all-important work of god the holy spirit in our lives in our families in the church he is the one that works in us both to receive the word by faith and then to be able to implement it in the practices of our lives jesus death and resurrection were followed well and ascension were followed by the day of pentecost the giving of the holy spirit to the people of god in an unprecedented new way. And this looked back at the promises of the Old Covenant concerning the giving of the Spirit. When God said through Ezekiel that He would sprinkle clean water upon His people, they would be clean from all of their uncleanness, He would give them a new heart and a new spirit He would put within them, He would remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, and he would put his spirit within them to cause his people. There's the effect then of listening to and obeying the commandments of God. You know, this is just a parenthetical statement, but one of the ironies of the Old Testament is Moses understood that his law was useless to people without the circumcised heart. He told them they needed it. He prayed for it. But in the wisdom and in the divine purposes of God, that Spirit was not given in His fullness until the Messiah came. But now that the Spirit has come, that interchange begins to take effect in a wonderful new way in the kingdom of God. The Spirit, of course, is the other counselor who was promised by Jesus and is the personal agent of the risen Lord Jesus, the one affecting the transformation of human beings, men and women, and building us up corporately as the people of God. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3 the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now again, we don't need to explore it, but just to mention it, what is the Spirit's work within us? in order to enable us to live the Christian life? Well, certainly regeneration, that new birth, that inner resurrection about which Ezekiel spoke and Jesus said, if you're not born again, you cannot see or enter into the kingdom of heaven. He is the one who unites us to Jesus Christ in a living communion. Conversion, repentance, repentance, Turning away from our sin and turning toward Jesus Christ to follow Him, that again is the effect of the inner working of the Holy Spirit. Faith itself is the gift of God through the Holy Spirit. And the constancy of that faith, the continuing in faith, and in the obedience that flows from that faith, they are all works of the Spirit. Without the indwelling Transforming spirit, it is impossible for us to please God in any area of our life, including our life within the family. The filial love, the obedience, the willingness to serve, these are things that come from the Holy Spirit. You know, a roadmap is a wonderful thing. But if you get in trouble because you ran out of gas another roadmap won't help, right? And here again, in our circles, we tend to emphasize the word of God and the the rules of God, but often what we need is gas in the tank or a spark in the carburetor. No, not carburetor. Distributor. You can tell how much time I spend under the hood of a car. I just figure it's all computerized now, so I don't know how it works anymore. Just push the button and get it going, you know. And, and, uh, and if we think about, think about children, we tell them the rules. We enforce the rules. They're not moving. So we give them more rules. And we give them louder rules. And we nag them and pester them and guilt them into obedience when, at the same time, We don't pray, we don't beg, we don't intercede, we don't plead, we don't speak to their heart. We're just piling the glove box full of more and more roadmaps. Praise God for His Word. But we must rely more and more on this indwelling God, this transforming agent of the risen Christ. Roadmaps are no substitute for gas in the tank and a spark in the engine. As Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing. It is the Spirit that gives life. And sadly, too many professing Christians have the forms of godliness, but they seem to lack its power. Besetting sins that are not broken Bad family habits that perpetuate themselves, sometimes from one generation to the next to the next. Paul wrote in Romans 8, as you know, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The one is hostility toward God, the other is submission to the authority of God. We, he says, who believe, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in us. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit. Which dwells in you. This may be the place where, as often as not, maybe most often, our family living goes wrong. Not for lack of rules, roadmaps, but for lack of transforming power, for lack of life from the dead. And then that third corner of the triangle is the goal. Where are we going? Where are we headed? In that passage that I referred to earlier from James chapter 1, he said that the testing of our faith will bring about perfection or completeness. The word there has the, is the sense of, of approaching the goal, becoming more like. Now again, I don't know how they make cars in this day and age anymore, but back in the olden days when they had assembled them piece by piece, you know, if you were building Cadillacs, that was the end product, that was the goal, then what started off as a chassis with some wheels on it as it moved through the process would look more and more Cadillac-like until they slapped those big fins on it and you said, that's a caddy. And this teleates, this idea of becoming more complete, means getting closer and closer to the goal. And so where are we going? Where are we going as families? What's the direction. How are we going to get there? Paul said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will bring it to its goal at the day of Jesus Christ. Christian living, Christian living in the home has to be teleological. It has to be aimed toward that goal. I would say, It needs to be purpose-driven, but that might give the wrong impression. But it must be purpose-driven. It must be goal-oriented. And that goal can be understood in at least a couple of ways. Last night, talking to the kids and those who were listening in, I mentioned Romans 8.29. You know, we all quote Romans 8.28. It's a wonderful verse. twenty nine dare I say it, is better yet. We have been foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Jesus Christ is at the end of the assembly line. He is the mature man, the complete man. We'll talk more about that in the next hour. And as we live through our lives, it is oriented toward Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, as we grow through trial, through this humbling, through this hungering, through this supply from God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ultimately, our goal is to be like Jesus Christ, personally and individually, or we could think of it in corporate, collective terms. Jesus told us, seek first the kingdom of, his God, of God and His righteousness. Make that your telos, your goal. Let your whole life be oriented toward that end game. And so the pursuit of God's kingdom, the advancement of His righteousness, hastening In that sense, the coming day of the Lord can be understood as our goal. And those are not mutually exclusive. As we grow more Christ-like, and we do that corporately and collectively, His kingdom program is moving forward in the world. So the question then is, where are we going? By what steps can we get there? What are the stages in this assembly line of Christian growth and development for our families, how can we practice those steps consistently so as to develop new habits of the inner person as well as our outward behavior that will instinctively orient us in our lives toward that goal? You can think of it as a spiritual sense of direction. How many of you have a good sense of direction? How many of you have a lousy sense of direction? You get lost in the, in the house. Yeah. Well, you know what that means. I mean, and it's, it's kind of intangible, but you know, you, you, you get into an unfamiliar place and you kind of have an idea. Now, you always, well, often have the sun around to help orient you, but some of us just kind of have a feel for where things are in relationship to one another. And even when you get lost, anybody get lost on the detour yesterday? up here for the first time, missed that first turn, well, you know, it's one of those things where when you miss that first turn, if you had a good sense of direction and you've been up here before, you should have known, um, I'm getting lost. And on mountain roads, it's not likely to get any better. If you have a good sense of direction, if you're compass, your spiritual compass can kind of line up, or at least you can orient yourself to other things, then you can find your way. Well, that's what I'm thinking of when I think about this goal orientation. So many Christians think very little about the kingdom of God. I mean, they read that verse, we even sing it, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God. But What does that mean? It means wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we have a sense that the kingdom of God is that way. And we want to orient ourselves and move in that direction so that what we're doing here and now is developing us toward that goal. Now, I can't, I've already given you so much stuff and I'm almost out of time. We can't cover all this sort of stuff. Some of these things are maybe just, you know, you're writing your notes. I'm going to think about this some more later. That's good enough. But this is so essential, this self-conscious understanding of God's standard of God's Word, the motivational concerns growing out of the work of the Spirit in our lives, and this spiritual sense of direction, how we're going to be moving. That, that if you begin to, to, to make this part of your mental vocabulary, you're going to find a lot of things that seem so arbitrary and so difficult in the abstract begin to make more sense and become, by God's grace, more doable. In the same sense that in anything, when we're really lost and disoriented and then we have to perform, it's so much harder. Six months down the line, when we know the ropes, those very same tasks become so much easier. So, let me close by saying a word about growing together in community, uh, because that's the other dimension of this. As I say, we're not called alone, and we're not pursuing these things alone, but within the company of the people of God. We grow and mature in the new humanity as a matter, uh, is a matter of our life together. Back again to the day of Pentecost, you know that uh, those who received Peter's word believed and were baptized, were about 3,000 souls. And then Luke goes on to explain that they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. They were together, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Together they were having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day. So as soon as people came to faith in Christ... They continued together. They didn't get it and then go home again, off to their own lives. And we live as the church, as the people of God, and even our families need to be understood in that larger context. Hebrews encourages us to consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. The community of the people of God helps with that. Under the oversight of our elder shepherds, this common life, this community life together can be very helpful. It's a source of encouragement. It's a source of intercessory prayer. It's a source of accountability and also of discipline. You are your brother's keeper. And we struggle and often fail when we try to go it alone. Satan likes nothing better than to isolate and then attack, and if possible, destroy. If you don't connect with each other in various ways, you will have a far, far more difficult time becoming what God intends you to be in Christ. One of the ironies of more recent years and thought about the family is that well-meaning Christians have begun to pit the the nuclear family against the family of God my family and my you know I I saw a sign even uh, a church advertising itself as family friendly now on one level I understand what they're reacting to where you know you go through the doors of the church and you never see another family member for the rest of the day or the week But how can a church not be family-friendly? But conversely, how can a family, a Christian family, not be church-friendly? And I think many of our brothers and sisters have opted for the isolationist family as the place where Christian growth can really take place, and they look with suspicion and fear at the corporate body of Christ. Now, maybe the corporate body of Christ hasn't done its job very well, but if we think we can do a better job on our own, we are fools and we will fail. So we need to keep thinking always when we think about our family life, how is it plugged in, how is it contributing to the life of the family of faith, how is it drawing from the gifts and abilities of that family. Christian living, can I say it, is a team sport, and as I say, there's no I in team, So we need one another. The danger of dividing church from family or family from church is something that we need to resist. Look at that. 10.30 on the button. Well, I've surprised even myself. I did discover that the second hour isn't an hour second hour is 45 minutes because you have to go pick up your kids at 10 minutes to 12 so stop watching the clock cuz but let's huh it's a guideline no 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 anybody here from bayview will tell you don't give pastor a guideline about time he needs rules um i don't know whether i, I really wanted to Give opportunity for questions along the way, but as I said, fire hoses—they tend not to allow that. But if we, if anywhere along the line, I will try to stop and entertain questions. But please, throughout the week, if you have questions or you want to talk to me, uh, I am at your disposal. I mean, I do have three grandkids here, but I also have a grandma here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> See your sins as a father. Repeat. In your sins as a grandfather. Let mom do it. Let grandma do it. Dave. It's okay. Grandma brought the geezer. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to take a break. (laughs) We're going to take a break after we pray. Uh, But um, anyway, so talk to me. And uh, we'll try and get as much juice out of this as we can in our time together. Let's pray. God, I guess the thing I want to say most of all at this point is thank you for our King. Thank you that he ascended to your right hand by the the road to Calvary and that lifting up on the cross. Glorified in his death and then glorified in his resurrection and then glorified some more as he took his place at your right hand. And we are delighted to confess that he is Lord and to bow our necks and bend our knees in joyful submission. Lord, you know there's something in us, even as new creatures, that doesn't like to be told. And sometimes we chafe at your rules. Sometimes we imagine that we can obey your rules somehow in our own strength, through our own effort, through our own Well, through our own effort. But we thank you, God, that you do speak about direction and about power and about the ultimate outcome of your working in us, both personally and collectively. And I pray as we now think these things into our humanness and into our roles within the family that you would give us the kind of nourishing soil in which our faith and then our practices can grow and be sustained, O Lord, for all of us have experienced within the family that it's that steadfastness, that continuance, that consistency that so often eludes us. So bless us and help us. I thank you for these brothers and sisters listening so attentively to your word. We pray that you'll bless our time of refreshment now and our conversations with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.